Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we will be reading from there in just a moment. As you're turning there, I'll add my welcome to you all. Thank you all for being here. We are especially encouraged by our visitors. We thank you so much for coming our way. We thank you for uh, setting aside this time to come and worship God on this first day of the week. We're so very, very thankful for you to be here. And we uh, love to hear the voices join together in song. And thank you, ladies, who sang the, the descant part of that last song. It was very beautiful. I appreciate that very much. It's good to be here. It's good to be amongst brethren on this first day of the week. This morning I want to talk about um, something that Stephen mentions here in Acts chapter 7 as he is giving a defense uh, before uh, Jewish leaders, the, 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 those that are still hanging on to the old law, those who have not come under the law of Christ. He stands before them and boldly tells them about this Jesus Christ whom he now serves. And Bible students know that it didn't end well for Stephen. At the end of what he had to say, those he was speaking to picked up stones and stoned him to death. But it did not dissuade him from speaking boldly about Jesus Christ, who he was, convicting them of their sins and what they had done. And he uses the opportunity to remind them that this is not the first instance that they were a stubborn, stiff-necked, uh, hard, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I like the word stiff-necked that's put there. That these people of God have always been stubborn. That's the word I'm looking for. Stubborn. This is not something new. And so as he is giving them uh, a little brief history about their stubbornness, really, he tells them about how they were stubborn in coming out of bondage in Egypt, and so much so that they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And if you're there in Acts chapter 7, he's reminding them about Moses, how Moses was trying to, to lead them, and yet they were still rebelling against him time and time again. It says there in verse 36 of Acts chapter 7, it says, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the, lands of e in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. It's a long time. I'm a little over 40. That's a, more than I'd like to say, but th that's a long time, 40 years. And this is the time that, that Moses has been leading the children of Israel, performing signs, and God has been with them, and yet they're still stubborn, still willing to turn back at any moment. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. There's a little messianic prophecy right there in the middle of all of this. That's pointing to Jesus. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. There's the, the account of God delivering the old law, what we call now the old law, the law of Moses to Moses. The end of verse 38, it says, And who was with our fathers, and he uh, received living oracles to pass on to you. Verse 39, And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So this morning what I'd like to talk about 
is don't turn back in your heart. You see, as Stephen was convicting these of, of being stubborn and not truly obeying God's law, he points out here something that's very interesting about the children of Israel that Stephen records. He says that um, they turned back in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. So physically we read about that a lot, right? How they always wanted to go back to Egypt when things got tough. But I like the fact that Stephen says in their heart they turned back to Egypt. So it's not just the physical part of it, but it's that inward part as well. And that's what we'll focus on this morning as we go through. Don't turn back in your heart. Let's talk about a few examples. First of all, let's talk about some examples that we ought not to follow. And we're going to pick up on what Stephen here is talking about with the children of Israel. Let's go to Exodus chapter 32. We have been speaking of these recently in our Wednesday night Bible class, so some of these will, you'll be familiar with if you're in that class, but it's a good lesson to pull these together and to look at the, the fact that uh, when, th- when times get tough, the children of Israel in their hearts were ready to turn back to Egypt. Here in Exodus chapter 32, this is the one Stephen is specific, talking of specifically as Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the, the law from God. We pick up here chapter 32, verse 1. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us, as this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears and your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Bible students, we know about the account here, about all that's taking place in these few little verses here, about where the gold came from, that was the plunder from the Egyptians. How they had gotten to the point where they are now, God had led them there by dividing the Red Sea and they passed through it and the waters came back and flooded the Egyptian army. All that is in account here. And Aaron, remember, is Moses' brother. He's his older brother. And Aaron is engaged in helping Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Yet, at a sign of trouble, even Aaron is ready to forsake this man Moses who had led them out of Egypt. See, in their hearts, they were, they were ready to, to abandon Moses, to make themselves another god, and to return to Egypt. It's also interesting to know that in this little example, they've already broken two of the commandments that God gave them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. And that's exactly what they did right here. So in their hearts, they are already ready to go back to Egypt. And this is not even taken into account all the times that they have already wanted to go back to Egypt. The first signs of trouble, when they get hungry, let's go back to Egypt. At least there we could sit by pots of meat. What did God do? He gave them manna. He gave them quail that they could eat. Every morning they woke up with the manna on the ground. They could go and they could fashion it into cakes and, and bake it and eat it. They never had to worry about where their next meal was going to come from. It was there on the ground for them in the morning. 
They were thirsty. What did God do? He made some waters that were bitter. Moses threw in a, 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 a branch and the waters became sweet where they could drink them. And then when there was no water, Moses took his staff and struck the rock and water came forth. All that's happened previous to now. Yet here they are again. Moses is up there 40 days. They're ready to make another, make a uh, fashion, an idol and return back to Egypt. Don't follow that example. Look over in Numbers chapter 14. Here again, the uh, children of Israel are getting ready to enter into the promised land. So they send out spies ahead to, to spy out the land and and they come back and they say, yes, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. But they said, ten of the spies said, we can't take this land. We can't take it. So here in Numbers chapter 14, beginning of verse 1, it says, And all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation has said to them, would that, I, would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we have died in this wilderness? And why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So not only in their hearts... Have they wanted to return to Egypt, but in their thoughts, in their minds, in their voices, in their words, they're ready to go back to Egypt. Again, more time has passed. More things have happened. God said, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. They sent 12 men. They came back and said, yes, indeed, it is a, man, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of them, 10 of those spies said, we can't take it. The cities are fortified. The people are giants there. There's only two men that said we should indeed go in. We'll talk about those two men here in just a minute. But here again, the sign of trouble, and they're ready to go back to Egypt. God said, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, yet they still could not bring themselves to not wanting to go back to Egypt in their hearts. Turn over a few chapters to chapter 21 of Numbers. Another instance. Here, they're wandering in the wilderness. They're getting um, towards the end of their wandering and getting ready towards going into the land, but there's still some more things they have to do and have to accomplish. They wanted to go through Edom, but the king of Edom said, no, you can't, so they've got to skirt around, which adds to their distance that they're having to, to travel, and so they're grumbling. Verse 4, it says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. You know what that means when you talk about we loathe this miserable food? They're talking about the manna. We loathe this miserable We're so tired of having food on the ground in the morning every day, which would eat. That's really what they're saying. Now, could they get tired of having the same thing for 40 years? Maybe. 
the other things that are God has given them along the way too. He's providing meat for them along the way in various instances. But think about what they're saying. We're tired of God blessing us every day with something to eat. Let's just go back to Egypt. What were they in Egypt? They were slaves. They were in bondage in Egypt. Yet, in a moment's notice, they're ready to go back. In their hearts, they're ready to go back to Egypt. Don't follow these examples, brethren, visitors. Don't follow these examples. Keep your mind focused on where it is that you're headed. Don't be ready to turn back to Egypt. Rather, let's follow some examples from Scripture that we have that show us the positive side. Go back to Numbers chapter 14, again with the instance with the spies. I mentioned there that 12 men went in. All 12 of them came back and said, yes, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Ten of them said, we can't conquer it. Two of them didn't say that. Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we can conquer it. Look in verse 30 of chapter 13. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, my slide's wrong there, it's chapter 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people and Moses said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it. For we shall surely overcome it. Why? Because God said they would. God says, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And the people there, you're going to take, take over those people. You're going to conquer them. That was part of the promise also. Look over in verse 6 of chapter 14. And Joshua, the son of, uh, of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we are passing through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Yeah, they're, they're there, but we're going to take them because the Lord said we would. Look what it says there in verse 10. But all the congregations said to stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of the meeting all the sons of Israel. The Lord's going to step in here, and, and through his providence, is going to make sure this happens. There's going to be consequences for this, of course. This is where they're going to be uh, condemned to wander in the wilderness for those 40 years. But God's going to make, Moses is going to make intercession. God's going to relent on wiping them completely out. And they're going to move forward. I think about what Joshua and Caleb said. Yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, there's people there that are, the cities are fortified, but God's with us. God's made a promise that we're going to take this land. Why aren't we going? Joshua and Caleb showed the faith that they needed and following through with God's promise. God had made the promise. Let's follow through with it. Let's keep our eyes fixed on the goal rather than turning and looking back to Egypt. Go with me into the New Testament now, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of faith. All these individuals we see have triumphed through their faith. Triumph through not turning back, rather looking forward. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, beginning. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. 
And he went out not knowing where he was going. Remember back when the promise was made to Abraham, this, this land that they're about to enter, the, the Israelites, that land was promised to Abraham way back and his descendants. So now the Hebrew writer is reminding us that God spoke to Abraham and said, get out of your land and go over here and you're going to be as a, as a sojourner, we'll read about here in just a moment, in this land, but this land eventually is going to go to your, uh, as an inheritance to your offspring and to your descendants. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city uh, which has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, Abraham had the right view. He didn't know where he was going. God said, come on, I want to show you a land that you're going to inherit. Hebrew writer says, by faith he did that. He didn't know where he was going, but he's willing to dwell in tents, live as a foreigner in this land, because God had made the promise to him. And that was good enough. Look in verse 13. It says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiled on the earth. You see, they didn't even, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't even set foot in the promised land. It was their descendants that would set foot in the promised land. But they were looking ahead. They were willing to keep going. They were willing to, to follow up through with what God had promised. They weren't looking back. Verse 14, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they've been thinking of what country that they went out from, they would have had an opportunity to return. If they would have been like the children of Israel, thinking about Egypt all the time, they might have turned back in their hearts. But they didn't. They weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about the things in the future. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There's a little lesson right there, isn't there? God's prepared a city for us. There's a city waiting in heaven for us. God has prepared it. Are we willing to keep our eyes focused on that? Or are we going to keep looking back to Egypt? Well, we were in the world. At least we had a nice house. At least I had a nice car. You know, if I have to follow God, I might have to give up those things. Look over in Luke chapter 9. Our Lord speaks to this as well. Luke chapter 9. Our Lord doesn't speak to this, correct myself, but it's spoken of about the Lord. Luke records here something about our Lord that's important. This is early in, in Jesus' uh, ministry that the events here are taking place. The transfiguration has just happened there, beginning verse 28. Fairly early in his ministry, it's going to be some time before he actually uh, is crucified. But look what it says there in verse 51. And it came about... When the days were approaching for his ascension, 
That's the days when he was going to leave the earth after he had been crucified and raised from the dead. As these days were approaching, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the villages of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Resolutely set his face. I think the New King James says, steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was ready to go and face the consequences of his very existence, and that is that he had to be put to death at the hands of men. He knew it. He knew what he was going to. He has been telling his disciples already what he's going to have to do. That he's going to have to go to Jerusalem. He's going to have to suffer at the hands of men. He's going to be put to death. And on the third day, he's going to, raise, he's going to rise from the grave. He knew that was going to happen. But what did he do? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. You think he was looking back? Looking back to Nazareth? Looking back to Galilee? No, he was looking ahead. For him, it was Jerusalem. That was where he had to go to co complete his mission. And he resolutely set his face to go there. So we have many more examples, but we have those examples from Scripture that show us that we need to face ahead, face our future, and don't look back to the world. Don't look back from where we came from, but rather look ahead. So let's talk about some practical things in our own lives. Let's understand uh, some things here about being content. Because that's really what it is, isn't it? It's being content with where we are in the world at any given time. So let's talk about being content in relationships. Various kinds of relationships that we have, family, friends, all those things. But I, the closest, most intimate relationship in this world is between a husband and wife. And so we need to make sure that we're content in that relationship. In Proverbs 5 and verse 18, it says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. So many families are torn apart when people think it's greener on the other side. When people think that this marriage that I'm in, I'm trapped in it. I should just get out. This person over here, they, they offer me something more. I should just get out of this marriage. Marriage is a bond between a husband and wife, and it's a lifelong bond. The only thing that releases us from that bond is the death of one of the spouses or adultery within the marriage. Other than that, marriage is, is for life. And so that's why we have Proverbs like this about rejoicing in the wife of your youth. You need to be content in that relationship. It doesn't mean that you settle for being miserable, it means in, in the marriage relationship, it means you work at it. You realize that this is, we are together for life, and let's make it better. Let's don't look over here, over there. Let's look in the future, where we're going. The 10th commandment says not to covet your neighbor's wife. There's a reason why those things are listed. Don't look over there and covet and wish you had that. This is your wife. This is your husband. Be content with that. Work on the marriage as much as you need to, but be content in that relationship. And that's truly a blessing and truly an honor to God if you do that. Long marriages are, are kind of unique these days, aren't they? Be content 
in that relationship. Be content in this life. You know, we have so many things that beset us. We have so many things that we, that we deal with. Tragedy, death, divorce. It affects other people. But we need to be content in this life. In Philippians 4 and verse 11, Paul's giving that discourse there about being, I've, I've had suffered need, I've been in abundance, I've been hungry, I've been well fed. He says there, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. And he goes on there in verse 13 to say, through Christ, uh, I can accomplish all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, Paul learned that lesson. He learned how to be content. If I'm fat and happy, so be it. If I'm skinny and not, if I'm hungry, so be that. Why? Because I'm headed over there. That's where I'm going. These things that are along the, along the way in life, fine, but I'm going over there. Be content in this life. Be content with the things that you have. God's blessed us so richly, especially in the country that we live in. We're so richly blessed. Be content with that. And brethren, we need to be content in the kingdom. We need to realize that there is work to do, no matter what. Look over with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> I, I say this to, to understand that we talked about this in the Bible class this morning about where's the school of eldership, you know, where does one go to become an elder, to be trained to be an elder. And the answer is right here. The answer is over in Palmetto and at Temple Terrace and at University and all the congregations, sound, faithful congregation, congregations of the Lord's people, that's where elders are made. So we need to be content in the kingdom. We need to be content in our part of working in the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 12 here, Paul expresses it as, as being parts of the body. Ver, beginning in verse 12, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member but many. Yet the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the part, part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. If you ever think about lose your way in, in the congregation, what am I doing here? I don't contribute to this congregation. Come back and read that again. He has desired. Your place in the body is according to what he has desired. Take that to heart. Take that to, be under, to understand that I'm not the hand, but maybe I'm the foot. Maybe I'm the eye. Maybe I'm the ear. I'm part of the whole. Whatever little part I might be, I'm still part of the whole. Verse 19, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? See, if we were all 
just individual random members of the body, where would the body itself be? And that's a plea for unity. Verse 20. But now there are many members, um, there, there are many members, but one body. Yes, there are many members, but we're all together as one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer than members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which deem less honorable. On, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more about seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. What's he's talking about there? He's talking about weakness within the body. Those who bring it upon themselves to think that they are weak. That's an opportunity for the other, the stronger members to step in and say, no, let's, let's build you up so that you are a, a well-functioning part of the body. But God has so composed the body, giving much more abundant honor to that member which lacked. The result of that is the one who has been built up. There should be no division um, in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You see, we're all part of the whole. We need to be, we need to be content in the kingdom. Realize that we have a role to play. Maybe small, maybe large. Maybe it goes from small to large. Maybe there's a time in your life where you go from large to small. But we're all members of the body. We're all important to the functioning of the body. We know of people that suffer health issues, a lot of them going on right now. And we see how when one part of the body suffers, how it affects the other parts of the body. There's a lesson right there. Let's be well. Let's be well-functioning. Let's make sure we're giving our best to the body and let's be content in the kingdom. And let's not return in our hearts back to Egypt. Those children of Israel so often were ready to, to just stop their journey and just go back. Let's not be that way. Let's not be that way. Let's be moving forward. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. Remember what he says about that? I count it but rubbish, garbage, what lies behind me. I press on to the goal, the upward calling. That needs to be our focus. Let's make sure we're doing that. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to make the changes in your life. To believe in what you have heard about the gospel message and, and to repent of the life that you're living. And to realize and confess who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God and through Him and Him only is salvation. And if you do that, you're ready to be baptized. You're ready to put on Christ. You're ready to become a member of the kingdom. If as a child of God you find yourself looking back to Egypt, back where you sat by those pots of meat and thought you had it well, but you'd kind of forgotten you were in bondage. You'd kind of forgotten that you couldn't do what you wanted to do. You might have been well fed, and that was so that you could work the next day. But you were enslaved. You might have a nice house and a nice car and lots of things in this world, but you're enslaved to those things if you're not seeking out something that's higher than that. God blesses us so richly 
I have a nice car to drive. Many of you have nice cars to drive. I live in a nice house. Many of you live in nice houses. We live in a beautiful part of the world. We need to be focused on where we're going because when we pass from this life, none of that's going to matter. What is going to matter is our service to God, how we have been a child of his while on this earth. We're ready to serve him in this life and the next. If you need the prayers of the congregation, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.